0: In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.
1: Were you surprised to see so much work going on at private houses during
2: Level 5? I wasn't all that surprised. Even the last Level 5, there was still a lot of work going on in this area. So, it's not... it doesn't worry me at all. So what do you think? Do you think it's
1: time for construction... To return fully, it was meant to return tomorrow on the
2: fifth of March, but that's been put back to April. Places like Aldi and Tesco can open, and they have restrictions, or if they have measures in, I can't construction either. I know a lot of people out of work, so in that industry, so I'm not gonna give out about them.
1: My understanding, could be wrong, is private homes can't can be classes essential, and that'll be my understanding. And to be honest, i now I've no issues with that, and people need to be volatilised, get work done. Uh, economy can't completely shut down. Everyone's going to have to pay for this eventually. Um, like life goes on. So I think I, I have no issues with people. Well, have house. you noticed much work going on that would be considered non-essential? I've noticed a lot of houses have had a lot of work done. Neighbours of mine, they recently moved in, they're getting work done. I have no issues with that at all. Um, in terms of non-essential construction, I haven't seen much now. Originally... All the construction was meant to return tomorrow, 5th yeah. of March, but now it's going to be April. Yeah. Do you think construction should be back now fully? Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. If they're outdoors, it's controlled. I don't think there's so many outbreaks in previous lockdowns in construction, not that I heard in the media. Like, we need to move on, yeah.
3: Barry White reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, did you ever do something without fully thinking it through? Well, take a listen to this.
0: Tell us what happened.
4: <laughs> um, well, it's an interesting one because I, like a lot of people, really, really can't stand litter. And I've noticed the litter seems to be worse during lockdown, whether it's because more people are staying at home or I don't know what's going on, but there does seem to be more of it. So I was out on my bike the other day. I stopped at a corner shop to get a cold drink because it was quite a warm day. And as I was pulling onto the pavement, this guy in a car on the corner of the street opens his car door and just starts throwing fag packets, bills, crisp packets, bits of paper into the gutter, right? So Mm -hmm. I said with, you know, I won't use the full version of what I said, but I said, you know, who's going to clear that up? And he said, what's he got to do with you? And I said, well, I live around here, and I don't want to live in a pigsty. And he said, well, I live around here as well, and I'll do what I want. And so it, we sort of went backwards and forwards. He got out of the car. We had a little bit of a to and a fro. And then I realized it was going nowhere. So I said, well, listen, you know, you, people like you disgust me, da-da-da-da-da. I went into the shop. I bought what I was buying. I came out, and I had a bit of a rush of blood to the head. And I opened his door, and I threw all his litter back into the car. Uh, <laughs> And which uh, I before we proceed,
0: it's... Alistair, if we, can, can you give us a sense of, you know, what he looked like? Was he an intimidating presence? Was he a big guy? Was he a fit guy? Was he a dangerous looking guy or was he just an idiot?
4: Uh, he was he was. Listen, he, the, the the thing that really got me is he kept saying to me, listen, you're an old man and I could do you a lot of hurt damage. <laughs> he was young. He was about my height and I'm six foot three. Uh, he was he wasn't massive. He wasn't like one of those guys you see in the gym and all kind of bolt up. But he was, yeah, he was lead, He was fit. Um, and he did keep saying, listen, if I laid one blow on you, I could knock you out right now. That was his kind of basic attitude. And then <clears throat> when I, <clears throat> after I'd thrown the litter in the car, he then came out and had a real go and sort of pushed, pushed me against. He, sort of, he either pushed me or he punched me on the back for some reason. <clears throat> he also kicked my bike, which really pissed me off. Um, anyway, at that point, the guy in the shop came running out and sort of split us up and got the guy back into the car. But you know, when I got home and told Fiona and and uh, and, the, and the family, they were like, "Hmm." And I, I bumped into Michael Palin, funny enough, who was out having a walk. He lives he lives near us, and he said, um, "I told him, and he said, I think you did the right thing, and then you did the wrong thing." <laughs> so, um, but you know, what do you do? I mean, it, it's like. What you do you, yeah, do well, when you, you, you did
0: somebody? what a lot of people would like to do, and then they hesitate because the guy is intimidating, and we know there 's an epidemic of knife crime, a knife can easily be concealed Now this guy might not have been that type of person at all, but still, the thought no, must look,
4: cross your mind kind of, Yeah, no, I did have that thought when i first when I first confronted him, it was just instinct i mean i, I didn 't even really think it through. When he got out of the car, I did have a thought, what if he's got a knife? So I just kind of, I was very much on guard for that. I actually held my bike. I'd swung my bike around to hold it in front of me. <coughs> um, and yeah, he was like, you know, he was tattooed and all that stuff. And I know you shouldn't make judgments like that, but, you know, in the heat of the moment, maybe you do. Um, he was, I think he was mixed race. And he was like, you know, and he, and, and and I'm so I was therefore very conscious of, because I've, you know, sometimes you get into those sorts of arguments and before you know it, they're accusing you of, you know, racism and all that stuff. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, I, I did manage just about to keep my cool. However, I realized that I probably maybe I went over the top in opening his car because then I said to him, listen, sunshine, you just assaulted me. And he said, yeah, well, you provoked me because you, you, you broke into my car. Um, <laughs> uh, as I was breaking into your cars, a bit different when you're sitting there at the driver's wheel, you know, on your phone,
3: communicator and campaigner, Alistair Campbell from the Pat Kenny Show.
5: Is this a deterrent for for people like yourself, dear? I know you're you're one of maybe is it two or three other counsellors that have stepped down from you were right down isn't that right? The
6: yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um. Oh yeah. There's. I mean, there's been a a lot of women I suppose over the years. Um, that have left politics. And there's probably a lot of women that have left politics or haven't even gone into politics because of this, but maybe they haven't said it publicly. Um, So there's a lot. And I mean, you know, I saw Maura Gagan Quinn came out there recently as well. Um, She had a a baby while she was an elected representative and and she said she was just absolutely shocked that in 40 years nothing had changed. And I mean, that's just a pretty sad... um, position to be in mm-hmm. at the at the moment you know who is at our top levels of politics it matters who's in power matters and if women aren't there, this is what's going to happen. Is it and important? And you're not going to encourage more women to go into politics.
5: Yeah. And is, is that the reason? Is that why, Deirdre, you believe it's 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 so important that the likes of Helen McEntee, the current justice minister, takes her maternity leave or or, or, or or does what she can to 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 allow her to take that maternity leave to I suppose set a precedent for for other people and and people like yourself that it it might be seen yeah. then as you know a job to stay in.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's it's an example that she's setting to women around the country that might be thinking about going into politics. They might think, well, you know, actually, she is doing this now, so we can do that as well. But I think what is really important is that we have women around those decision-making tables and that we have a cabinet that is 50-50, men and women, so that we get to the point where this isn't a big deal and there isn't a huge amount of commentary around this personal experience that Helen McEntee is having. You know, when do we get to the point where women don't have to pour their hearts out about their pregnancies and about these personal decisions that they're making and, and emotional so decisions? So publicly, just to have one small change. I mean, Orla O'Connor made the point the other day in an opinion piece that we turned around a vaccine, a global, va- you know, vaccine for for this pandemic in a year, and we can't offer female representatives maternity leave. We can turn something around, a very simple legislative change. We can turn it around very quickly to allow our representatives to have maternity leave and have something that you know, basically every other employee in this state is entitled to. This is the government. I mean, step up and lead by example.
5: So what happens, Deirdre, if you sort of cast your mind back to when you were part of the Dunleary-Ratdown Council um, as a Labour county councillor there? Mm. So if you, um, when you had, had your baby during your, your tenure as a county councillor, yeah. that just means you're you're, I suppose, out of the loop, if you like, for council meetings and events and whatever, votes... For that period. Yeah, yeah.
6: Well, well, well. I still went in. I took on well, my first baby. I took the the first month off, and then I went back in for council meetings. Um, because if you know, you have to be there. You're you're not entitled to anybody for anybody to take over, and you have to be present in the chamber. Well, you had to be present in the chamber when there was um votes no and... no COVID in the country. Yeah. Um, so you had to be present there for votes. Um, and that kind of thing. Um so I was there, I suppose my baby was about a month old and he was coming into council meetings with me and I was doing, you know, I was still going out canvassing and I was, I campaigned a lot on the repeal the eighth um, referendum with my baby and that kind of thing. And, you know, things I was happy to do, I think, on my first child. But, you know, it wasn't easy either. I found it uh, very demanding um very demanding physically, very demanding mentally. So on my second child, I think I did have to make that very difficult decision. Can I continue on with, you know, my general Mm -hmm. election campaign or um, do I need to make the decision now and and not do it? Like I will say, I I did have fantastic support from um, my colleagues, my Labour colleagues on the council who were all absolutely very willing to help with um, any work or anything that I would have needed support with. But... At the end of the day, I wasn't entitled to it. Um, I wasn't entitled to any leave um, unless it was sick leave, uh, which is the same with TDs. I think at the moment, um, any TDs that have babies, they have to uh, present sick certs. Um, and it's not a sickness, it's not an illness, it's, it's just having yeah. a baby. So okay. um, I think that national recognition is, is very, very important. And I think if we want more women um, involved in politics, we need to change it.
1: Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live. Before all that, though, Kira, uh, um, interesting development yesterday with the, uh, I suppose, the church, uh, Catholic Church, I suppose, ramping up pressure on the government in relation to reopening of uh, churches uh, in time for Easter. TD's been encouraged to, to lobby their politicians uh, in relation to this. I'm kind of torn on this, I have to say. What's, what's your take on it?
7: Um, I, I should say up front... I'm not religious. I'm an atheist. I haven't been to church except for for a wedding or a funeral in donkeys years. Having said that though, I have sympathy for the bishops in this instance because, first of all, lots of churches are huge spaces. They're not just single height, double height. Some of them are triple height areas, you know, massive. And if you had the doors open, they're extremely well aerated. So they're huge. I do think that a small handful of people, you know, in their socially distance is entirely possible. I also think, that the people who attend church tend to be the elderly. An enormous amount of particularly the older elderly population will have been vaccinated by the time Easter rolls around on on, on the, the 4th or the 5th of April, whatever it is. And I think that cohort in particular, they've been advised to cocoon, they've lost friends, they have had maybe, you know, a a, a spouse in a nursing home. Yeah. They've, they've had grief and they've had no ability to grief, to mourn, any of that stuff. I think their faith is actually important to that generation in a big way. And I don't object to that group being allowed in. It does. I'm not talking about having a full church. I'm not talking about having a family mass yeah. with all the kids there with Easter eggs. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about a church working out their, their square footage and allowing in a small number of people based on square footage. Maybe people who've lost somebody. That kind of thing. Easter uh, is the biggest celebration I mean, of the Catholic Church. We we Those of us who were raised Catholics might remember. Yeah. And I think maybe it's fair enough.
1: Uh, and look, I'm not going to pretend I, I strongly disagree with that because c- I don't and I totally accept where you're coming from. We spoke about this a couple of weeks ago on the show and there was a text that I was very persuaded by because uh, lots of people, lots of people were texting ridiculous stuff like, oh, look what happened at Christmas when we opened up the churches as if it was the churches that caused uh, mm-hmm. the, the soaring numbers in, in COVID. But one person texted in and said, I'm kind of worried about this because my parents are deeply religious. And they will feel under pressure to go back to Mass and I would prefer if we just held off for another month or so. And I was kind of, that sounds like a good approach to me. And I'm, I kind of think it might be a little premature, a little early. It, they are enclosed uh, spaces and no matter how well spaced out you are there for 45 minutes to an hour particularly at Easter you're going to be there for an hour. I'm, I'm just, I'm not convinced by it. That's all I'll say.
7: But the only thing is is, is, is it is a month's time. It's, it's, it's the 4th or 5th of, of April and this is only the 10th of March and the cases were 300 last night so the chances are will the cases be 100, 200 that cohort, that older population they will be mostly vaccinated let only vaccinated people in if you want to, watch the social distancing watch the numbers but people have lost I, I still think we never look there's lots of people speaking know, up I on agree. behalf of Covid all the public health people yeah, are right, out in it what about the people who don't have Covid but have have other issues? Have lost and, and their community me. and their faith no, and all those I, things. I, 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 all,
1: all that absolutely acceptable. I think it's but, manageable. But is there? Are you putting pressure on people to go back to mass? Will they feel obliged when they, I? I
7: just I think I'm their families could step in and say, "You don't have to, ma'am. You don't have to, dad. But the option is there for some people." maybe. Okay.
3: Shane and Kira on News Talk Breakfast.
8: While the majority of local councillors are in favour of the motion, some have reservations. Have a listen here to Michael Gilfoyle, a former independent councillor and a former mayor of
2: Venice. I totally wouldn't support city status. That, uh, First of all, we, we, we don't have the population of. but apart from that, if you were fortunate to get city status, that everything price-wise would go through the roof. The cost of living would be quite expensive, the cost of purchasing houses. And then with that, you also have the difficulty, the bigger you are, the bigger the problems.
6: Could you ever see it being a city? Do you pride yourself as living in a town?
2: I, I love the town of Venice. Even the fact that I'm speaking to, uh, I, I'm speaking as, as a born and reared person in the town and I don't want no one to destroy my town. I have grandchildren. I'd rather leave them something that they'd be also as proud as I am of the town not to destroy it
6: have you been talking to many people about it what do people think of it no, do they pe- think it's a good idea
2: no people people don't want it you see no one wants a Dublin and, and, and no one wants a Cork and no one, even though Galway is booming you know it's quite near the municipal district councils you would have 50% out of the town and so you could have councils from uh, North Clare voting for city status and it would mean nothing to them I know it'll probably never happen Chief, <laughs> before I'm I'll be well truly dead and gone before it'll happen but at the same time, I don't think we should be going down that road. Even I, I was speaking to my son there in Scotland and he was saying, oh, he said, look at the benefits of it. But they're not looking at that there could be the gangs or there could be the drug scene or could be the nightclubs. You know, they're, they're keeping everyone awake at night.
8: The streets of Venice have been pedestrianised since last May to help with social distancing. Business owners within the town, however, have held protests seeking the end of the measures due to the negative impact it has had. I caught up with a few of them to hear what they thought of Ennis becoming a city.
9: Yeah, so it's old Tierney from Tierney's Cycle Shop in 17 Abbey Street in Ennis here. We don't need any city. We just, we need Ennis to be, Ennis left actually as it was. My own grievance at the moment is actually Press the street, which is actually, we don't need to uh, complicate issues. It's our town and we want, to, it also going to be our town.
6: You were just talking about the campaign as well to to stop the pedestrianisation of the streets in Ennis. This has been going on for a few months now where the main street has been pedestrianised.
9: Yes, yes. Yes. I see. Ennis uh, is a narrow street, really. It's just some towns can't take pedestrianisation. You can't just block the bottom of one street willy-nilly and expect uh, traffic to go into a car park. It's the council, Clear County Council, ticking boxes.
6: For people who might know, why was the street pedestrianised in the first well, place? see,
9: they're using, and the big thing is, they're using the, God, they're using the COVID hard. COVID is very serious and it's a worrying uh, uh, phenomenon at the moment. So I'm in business for 40 years and I've been trying to pedestrianise the streets for a long, long time. They've actually really uh, buried up the town and I know things are quiet. But they don't need to be that quiet. It's just actually at six o'clock uh, the barriers are open from eleven to eleven to eleven to six o'clock they're closed. Uh, magic Wand, then they open it at at six o'clock and COVID doesn't stop at six o'clock. So this is just a contradiction. They just don't talk to the general public. Ninety percent of, uh, of the traders in this disagree with this. Ninety percent they just won't talk to us.
6: So when you have this frustration over this for the last nearly year now. Yes, yes. What must it be like when you hear the news of, you know, that a city status is
9: being considered? Yes, it's another uh, sort of distraction. We don't need city status. We have a lovely, lovely town. We're just not a city and we'll never be a city. We don't need to be a city. We just need industry. And it is going well at the moment. You, you will have, a, have an outpost out here, which is great. Delighted. But we don't need We don't need city status. Forget about city status. Concentrate on the greenways.
3: She from McQueen reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. And how...
0: Worried are you then, Sharon, when when you look into the future and and you hear people talk about about early intervention, as you mentioned it, and that it needs to be early for it to be really effective, and the longer you wait for it, the bigger the impact on 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 any child's development. In your case, on your daughter's development.
8: I I'd be terrified for for any parent who's going into this now because the system was bad before. It was very bad before. Like we have family who've navigated the system before and they've all, you know, we've heard their stories and we've been like, oh God, that's awful. And like, what's happening now? I understand why they're doing it. They want to make it better. They are trying to make it better, but there's no continuation whatsoever. They're like, okay, well, look, we'll just let things drop off a cliff face. And anyone who's stuck in this two year period, well, feck them. You know what I mean? Mm. That seems to be what the, what the, there was no plan for what was going to happen in this middle period for all the children who needed intervention in this middle period. Like, I'm really hoping that the new system works. Like, I, I would, I would love to be an optimist. I really would. But, you know, I mean, the last time we, for our one appointment, we, I rang them afterwards and they said, look, you know, they don't hold out much hope either. Nobody in the sector is holding out much hope for this. From what I, my understanding of it is, the very few people mm-hmm. that we have seen, they don't seem to think that it's going to, it's going to be quite, you know.
0: Yeah. And Sharon, I know all your emotional energy is probably being directed towards your daughter, but like I'm sorry, like this must be difficult, so difficult for you because any parent, and I know myself as a parent, like if there's something wrong with your child, you you just assume that you would be able to bring your child to see someone someone will tell you what's wrong and then someone else will try and fix it and and you hope to god that it's not something that's seriously wrong and that it is easily fixable but at least there's a clear pathway you know bring it bring the child to see someone get a diagnosis get treated i mean you probably assumed it would be like that as well and then reality I- hit
8: I kind of, I, I kind of thought it, I, I knew that things were a bit complicated because of the, the kind of the seizures and things like that. They thought maybe the the behaviors were kind of related to that at the start. And, you know, it was a bit, things were a bit complicated, but I suppose I just, it's very, <clears throat> you're there, you're there and you're, you know, you're sleeping for like 40 minutes during the night and your your other children are missing school because, and you're losing your job because, you you know, you're you're getting caught, you have to take your child in an ambulance because they're having a seizure, or, you know, you haven't slept in two days, or so you're just, like, physically unable to perform the basic tasks required to keep a household running, like remembering to get the groceries, remembering mm-hmm. to do the laundry, because once your level of sleep deprivation and stress gets to a certain point, you literally can't function on the most basic level. And mm-hmm. for then, for you to just haul yourself into an appointment like that after crawling through glass to get it, and you get in there, and it's like you literally, like I literally, I walked home for two hours, and I, I just in the rain crying because I was like, I can't, like there is, it's just, it's so hopeless. There's no there's nothing. It's so bleak, and I had, I suppose, I'm a very, I can't, I, you know, I'm a very positive person. I can find the good. And I can, you know, and there is plenty of good in this situation, even though it's very hard. You know, my daughter's like, you know, she's just absolutely hilarious. She she'd keep you in absolute hysterics when she's not, you know, keeping you up all night. And, you know, all these kind of things like she's mm-hmm. she's an absolute light in her life. But at the same time, watching her struggle and not being able to help her is the most excruciating experience that I have ever and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy because I just... You just literally, like, you're knocking on doors left, right and centre and they're just being closed in your face and you're like, am I actually crazy? Like, am I actually... Did I imagine... Am I just... Am I am I imagining this whole situation? Like, I'm obviously not because the public health nurse, the GP, the neurologist team, the hospitals, I mean, they're all involved. I mean, but I must be because why is nobody helping us while we're screaming out for it?
4: In case you missed it,
0: with Susan Cahill. a look back at the week on News Talk.
10: So the the, the, the modern dummy, then uh, what we you know what we did, that thing with the latex tip or a rubber tip? When when did that first appear?
11: Yeah, it's it's interesting. This happens in the very early part of the twentieth century, and there's a big change here because you go from having these rags which are filled with honey or sugar in fact they were called sugar tits Yeah, uh, which is an unfortunate name
10: I know what that's like that Happens me
11: <laughs> sugar tits or sugar teats or sugar rags to a dummy which had no food in it at all and what happens is that a pharmacist from New Jersey by the name of Christian Mennecke, um probably German he or of German extraction he applied for a patent Sean for a device called um, a baby be comforter, as I said at the top of the item. It was a disc shaped shield and the nipple was made out of sulfuric rubber. So it would have smelled absolutely foul, um, as you can imagine. Mm. And uh, the shield would have been made with bone or ivory. So it would have been considerably heavier than the ones of today and um, it was often painted white um, using lead paint so it was probably poisonous too. So not ideal. Not ideal at all. But that wasn't the only reason why these devices were controversial. They're still controversial to this day. I mean, I remember when we bought our first dummy, I remember Ingrid saying, oh, make sure it's orthodontic. It has to be an orthodontic one because people, you know, Mm, they freak out about is it going to harm the the baby's um, gums or teeth or future teeth or whatever. So uh, this medical hysteria is as old as the the beginning of the 20th century uh, or even before the late 19th century there was a a german pediatrician in 1879 he he uh, his name was dr lindner and he declared that infantile Thumb-sucking was the cause of chronic masturbation in later life. Mm -hmm. Now, there were a lot of paediatricians who were saying this. (laughs) Sorry, your face. (laughs) I used
10: to suck my thumb. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I'm saying.
11: Your face is like, where are you going with this? But there was a whole narrative in the press and indeed in the uh, paediatric community that if you allowed your child to use a dummy, then they would become masturbators. Now, the idea at that time was that there was a whole religiosity about masturbation, that it was that, you know, God wouldn't be pleased if Mm. you were at that kind of thing.
10: Mm. Bit of a time gap, though, between, you know... Huge gap. Yes.
11: Yes, You'd hope, yeah. Almost 2,000 years. But um, the other thing was that people worried that uh, dummy sucking would lead to an, uh, your child becoming a smoker in later life. The idea hmm. was that there was a clear transition between sucking on a dummy and sucking on a cigarette.
10: Right, okay. Okay, kind of a logic there. There is there a went... bit of
11: a logic there. More yeah. than the last one.
10: Right, okay. And is it because, I mean, this? I'm sure people will be texting in about this because there is that when they get, you know, it's probably early days for you yet, but uh, when they hit like three or four or five even yeah. uh, and then you know the, uh, the, the the transitions with the teeth are coming that's when people worry about uh, dody sucking will, uh, will start to kind of have an influence on, on the shape of their teeth. Is there any evidence on that one way or the other that you found? Yeah I, I'm not sure and I wouldn't want to comment on
11: that because I'm sure there is some medical advice associated with that question. What I would say is from our perspective you know it's hilarious when you are about to have a baby you kind of have conversations with your friends and you say, you know, are you going to use a dummy or not? As if it's some sort of choice. I guarantee you, like someone said to me the other day, they're about to have a child. They said, we're not going to be using dummy. And I said, give that a, f- a few weeks or a few months and, and, and come back to me. Because it's not something that you necessarily choose. The baby will probably choose it for you. Mm-hmm. But for us, we will use a dummy only in the cot or in the buggy. And she's not allowed to have the dummy anywhere else. And she never asks for it anywhere else because we've set clear boundaries. Now that's good parenting.
10: That's good parenting, yeah. Simon Tierney
3: there on stuff that changed the world from Moncrief. Now this week, the Future of Work podcast has just been launched on Newstalk.com. Here's a little taster on well-being in the workplace.
10: What about the office then? Because there's a whole discussion, I suppose, about the future of the office. You know, there's going to be more remote working uh, and maybe the office is going to be less the centre of everything that goes on. What do you make of all this? What do you think the role of the office will and should be?
12: OK, I think people have it wrong. Uh, Pre-COVID, uh, funny enough, I did a book that was a global science book. Looking, It was called Flexible Work. It came out in May. I was very lucky. Thank you very much. Uh, the book came out in May and it's done extremely well. I was looking at all over the globe. What does the evidence say on flexible working? Not remote working, by the way. Remote working means 100% from home. But flexible working is what people want, gives them autonomy and control, and so on. The evidence was it delivered to the bottom line in terms of productivity, job satisfaction, and less stress-related sickness absence days. So we know that works. However, we're going to have two phases when we get back to work, when we get back to an office environment. Uh, number one phase will be everybody will want to go into the workplace for two reasons. One, they miss other people and their colleagues, right? It's the, the, their social needs haven't been met during this year, and they want to uh, go back into the office, uh, relate to their colleagues, team build, develop the culture. The second reason they're going to want to go back in is they're feeling job insecure, and they want to look at the politics of that workplace. They want to find out, is my job really secure here? How are we doing? What's going on? So they'll do that for political and social reasons to start with, everybody, everywhere. But second phase will be when they feel secure that their job is reasonably secure and that they've now linked with their colleagues, they'll go to the hybrid model. They'll work substantially from home, by the way, where where they can. Doctors and nurses can't. Bus drivers can't. But where they can, they will go work a hybrid model, which means they'll work probably substantially from home three days a week, probably one or two days a week in a central office where they have to team build, where they have to develop a new product or service whenever they need to and for their social needs. So the office will not disappear, but it will be downsized. I know in London, tons of businesses now that are getting rid of floors of their office. So if they have four floors, they're now getting rid of two to three of those floors because they know that the lo- the medium to long term will be a hybrid model where people work primarily from home. But go into the office a day or two a week.
10: Just very briefly then, what would you say are the, the lasting lessons of this pandemic for companies who are looking to manage their employees'
13: well-being?
12: Okay, number one, uh, I, I think, is allow give people autonomy and control of their job. If they want to go into the office 100% of the time in the long run, let them. If they want to work substantially from home, and, and by the way, if this works for the nature of the job they do, that's really important in terms of psychological contract, give people autonomy and control. Let them decide a flexi place, flexi time, as much as you can, because that delivers to the bottom line and makes people feel trusted, and it makes for healthy, healthier employees. That's one. And the second thing is, please look at your line managers, because the new world... Of the hybrid model of working, where people met, will work from home and everything else, requires somebody who can manage people who are working in different contexts—some from a central office, some from home. It require and with the pressures of 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 the stress from the recession, we need a different kind of boss. And you have to train those that need that, that kind of help. And whatever you do, let people prioritize their work. Let them get some balance in their homework and. Be aware that people, when they're feeling job insecure, will tend to work extremely long hours. That is counterproductive. Long does not mean productive. Long means ill.
3: Some fascinating insights there from Future of Work. And of course, you can download the latest podcast every Wednesday afternoon on Well,
10: What I think is wonderful about Colin Murakawa is knowing that he had putting problems or putting issues for quite some time now, um, he he went to the claw, but he actually he he went and sought uh, out Mark O'Meara, uh, who gave him lessons in how to use the claw, um, and he also has approached Paul Asinger in relation to chipping. So it's wonderful to see a guy who's so young and got such a great future ahead of him, um, and has been so successful, actually realizing right here's my little flaws. Who do I go and? have a chat to, and, you know, how do I improve? While a lot of guys would be, you know, they say the stupidity of youth or whatever they want to call it is, they say, well, you know, my way is the best way. That's it. I'll just do it my own way. But he's willing to go and find out. And, and you look, it, it, it's been great for him. I only watched Marikawa hit one nervy putt. Uh, everything else, the putter went, you know, it, 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 it moved so fluidly at the hole. Um, and even um, his playing partner uh, on on Sunday remarked how good his putting was.
1: Well, I think it's quite good that Morikawa, as you said, Peter, has the maturity to acknowledge there is a problem. And it's interesting, Hovland does as well with his chipping. You know, just said, I'm pretty shit at chipping, if you haven't noticed. Like, du- direct quote, because yeah, I think um, a lot of players would bristle and say, my pudding's fine. You know, I think a previous generation were more inclined to, if a reporter dared bring up an aspect of their game that wasn't good, they'd get short shrift, you know, there'd be a degree of less. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. My pudding's just fine. Whereas Murakawa has, has almost brought attention to it himself. That's huh? who he played with. Billy Horschel. Yeah, well. Done. Yeah. So uh, I think it's, as you said, it's a real sign of maturity. He's very smart, Murakawa, the way he speaks, very impressive.
13: Mm. The way he got that uh, that watch on.
1: <laughs> Straight oh, away. they all do
13: that <laughs> oh, but, uh, maybe he was just caught in the act uh, which is what made it more all the more galling uh, mm-hmm. It's very likeable it, it, it felt last year he might be quite forgettable but actually getting into contention all the time he mm-hmm. does come across as, as a pretty good guy, pretty smart guy it was interesting looking at some of the stats afterwards about himself and Tony Finau and how similar their performances have been over the last sort of year, 18 months, but the difference in how many times they've actually won the tournaments. And Finau has played 159 rounds. Marikawa has played 152. Finao on average 1.55 strokes better than the fields. Marikawa 1.47 strokes better than the fields. But Marikawa has four wins. And Tony Finao it turns out doesn't have any.
11: Hmm. Yeah.
13: So is there is is that that good fortune of doing it at the right tournament at the right time or is that he has that cutting edge that maybe think, Finau is lacking I think he has cutting edge I think he's a killer
3: Joe Malloy Fionn Davenport Peter Laurie and Nathan Murphy from Golf Weekly on Off The Ball
0: In Case You Missed It with Susan Cahill a look back at the week on News Talk
3: on Monday, Henry McKean joined an Irish Defence Forces training exercise as they prepare to deploy for the Golan Heights.
14: My name is Corporal David McCormack, part of the 63rd Infantry Group one And I'm Corporal Kenny McCormack, uh, part of the 63rd Infantry Group as well. Grandfather, uncles and father before us was in it as well, yeah. Look, it's been tough. and um, We've been away from family a lot more, a uh, lot more control measures there. Um, with the pandemic and stuff like that, but it is great to have my brother here with me. Family yeah. connection is always good.
4: And, and do you get on? Do you ever, like argue? Do you have a fight?
14: Yeah, well, no more than any sibling, especially close in age. We would have grown up, we would have had our differences, but yeah, he followed me into the fence horses then after I like, a couple of years done. And um, yeah, it's good to have him here. He even done some good things. He came in, he was promoted there. I think he's promoted three years now. And go on, my it's good to serve overseas with him as well. No more than anyone it's great to serve your country but any day you get to walk around with your country's flashing your shoulders a great day like we we have a strong family tradition with it um, represent your country and to me the best part of the job is to be able to do it on the front line overseas. You see places in the world that you've never seen very well trained everything's been uh, very successful honing in on our skills from so i forward to deploying now come April. Well, I'm Stephen Holleran. Uh, Shane Holleran. Uh, we're going overseas with another pair brothers at the McCormick's League.
4: And your dad, your dad uh, is in the Defence Forces?
14: Yeah, he's been in the De- De- Fo- Defence Forces now for about 32 years. And you'd be excited to see what it's like over there. You hear a lot about it over the time serving, but it'd be good now to finally get it hands-on. Yeah, it's nice to go over, you know, that's what you're training for, so.
4: You're 23 and 24. How long have you been in the Defence Forces for?
14: About three and a half years now. Yeah, about five years now, Henry. Get a chance to train, you get to do things you'd never normally get to do going overseas, you know. Uh, We got to help out with the pandemic as well. At the testing centres, you know, directing traffic or people who were qualified enough were able to actually swab. Uh, Well, I did a lot of driving and delivering testing kits and PPE to nursing homes and hospitals that needed it around the country. Good to be a part of it.
4: I know you can't comment on this, but a salary increase would be nice. Uh,
14: I wouldn't Uh, say no. no
4: (laughs) Who do you want to say hello to in Galway?
14: Uh, Mum and Dad back in Galway, yeah. Backing up to her, yeah. I suppose the lads in Dumalisa as well in Galway. Galway Galway Barks, right more.
2: On the command, stop, stop, stop. Move it out,
10: watch your spacing. You're nestled right in the centre of Wicklow in, in the Glen of Amal. Um, it's been used for over 200 years initially by the British Army and, and they would have uh, they would have used it as an artillery range. The Irish Defence Forces, when it was set up in 1923, we took it over and we still use it. You can look at, you have the highest point in Wicklow Mountain up here. I know it's in... It's, in, uh, it's, it's quite in, foggy. It's quite foggy. But up here is Lough um, you've got Camera Hill over here to my right hand side, and over here you've got Table Mountain. So, this whole area is our live fire range, and this is our main training area for the, everyone in the Defence Force. No matter what unit you're in, everyone will have spent time down here at some stage.
15: Hi, I'm Corporal Jennings. My first name is Catherine. Uh, I'm from Galway, based in the 1st Battalion in Galway, and I'm deploying on the, with the 63rd Infantry Group to its area. I think it's something like 6% overall of the of the Defence Forces is female. Um, I was just attracted to a couple of different components of the job and liked the look of it, so I joined. <laughs> I'd like to say hello to my friend Jessica <laughs> and uh, my sisters. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I'm not overly nervous about it. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to going. Can't wait to get on the plane. Tell me about that, that gun you're holding. Um, it's the Steyer rifle, it's a 5.56 calibre rifle that's used by uh, the Defence Forces. In a section of privates, um, this is your main primary weapon. Most of the section will carry it's a rifle, and really, it's an extension of your right hand, um, and it's your main weapon as a soldier.
2: You're going to stop all fire movements, apply your safety catches, and await instructions from the safety staff. My name is Sergeant Brian McGarren, um, I'm the range conducting officer here in the Glen of Amal. Uh, for the, the shooting part phase life fire uh, tactical training exercise,
4: uh, dealing specifically with the MOAG. So, uh, the MOAG is a, it's not a tank, it's a, a military vehicle. What is it? So,
2: the definition we have for it is an AFE, it's an armoured fighting vehicle.
4: I haven't seen that amount of ammunition since <laughs> perhaps Rambo, there's a lot there. Yeah, uh, unlike Rambo, uh, we do change ammunition boxes. My name is Lieutenant Dave Franklin. And we're all wearing PPE here today. We're wearing flak jackets. I have a flak jacket on at the moment and um, helmets. So there's gunfire just there. Yeah, what you can hear there is
13: uh, our AFVs conducting their pre-deployment confirmation training. Those are demolitions of uh, charges not used in the previous attack. They' are a battle simulation device designed to ensure that soldiers are exposed to the simulated effects of loud munitions which they might encounter and yeah, yeah, test their reactions.
4: And I shook when I had that. That's a
16: fairly normal first response.
3: Henry McKean reporting for the Heart
16: it's one of the most interesting initiatives I've seen anywhere from from a museum or a gallery dur- during this madness, like the uploading of a, a thousand high resolution, like we're talking perfectly high resolution, good to print artworks uh, to the general public and giving them under Creative Commons the freedom to do whatever they want with them. And you know that includes commercial kind of reimagining and republication. So, I mean, this you, you hear something like this, you know, a thousand artworks online that you're free to uh, reinterpret, reprint, whatever. You, you might think about artists that are centuries dead, you know, mm. like with the, the, the written word and, and, and copyright and all those cheap editions of Shakespeare that you see. But actually what the National Gallery of Ireland have brought forward includes people like John Butler Yeats, Harry Clarke, Sarah Purser. So we're talking okay. you know, so leading Irish artists fairly, of the fairly contemporary. century yeah. and their work has just been put there in the, in, in the public domain.
15: Um, the gallery, as a lot of galleries tended to, began life in a very different time. And people were much less egalitarian
11: about who art was for and who should be able to go and, and experience it.
16: And that's what's quite funny about this, because this is so incredibly egalitarian. This, this idea of launching art into the world under, under creative commons. And it, it wasn't always that way. You know, when, when galleries like the National Gallery opened, it opened in 1864. Uh, and it began very humbly, 112 artworks. Dozens of which were actually on loan from the National Gallery uh, in London, mm. amongst other sources. So it was a strange time in the world, you know, this, a transformative time, I suppose, for cultural institutions, recreational institutions, uh, and people finally had you know, that hard-won victory. You know, things like the weekend, time off work. But the national, the idea of a national museum and national gallery. Uh, was kind of controversial among, especially the upper echelons of, of society. who have been quite happy just hoarding this stuff in their houses. Mm. And and one contemporary in Britain had a, a a shocking line. She said that the loiters and loungers and the vulgar starers were the kind of people who'd be going to national galleries and national museums. The vulgar starers, <laughs> never a vulgar stare. That's that's
10: sort sort of how you feel when you go
11: into a a high-end part of a foreign city and you decide that you go and want to walk into like the Louis Vuitton store or the Dior store or something. You just feel like a a vulgar stare. Like, I'm not going in there to buy any luggage. I'm just going in for a gawk, you know?
16: What's the cheapest thing in the Gucci shop? (laughs) But thankfully, in in, in Dublin, like the gallery really flourished for a a kind of variety of reasons. And then in time, it was championed uh, by the great George Bernard Shaw, who kind of insisted that his real education in Dublin came from the National Gallery. He would go in the Mitch from school, and he, he always referred to the gallery as the cherished asylum of my boyhood, which is a brilliant kind of Shaw way uh, with words.
15: And in, indeed, uh, on that note, Shaw isn't he? He's today honoured in the gallery with the fine statue that meets you when you go in, or the great It's rather. a great,
16: uh, it's a fantastic statue when you come in the, the Clare Street side of, of of the gallery. And you know, not only was Shaw like, generous in his lifetime, he was especially generous uh, in, in death because a very significant percentage of his kind of posthumous royalties flowed into. The Dublin Gallery. So, you know, if you're ever in there appreciating artworks, there's a very good chance that the, the pockets of a, of a dead George Bernard Shaw paid for what you're what you're looking at. And to be honest, it was probably the only real connection that, that Shaw maintained with the city of his birth because he spent a lot longer living outside Dublin uh, than in it. But he had a great line, he said, you use a glass mirror to see your face, you use works of art to see your soul. And everyone, Shaw believed, rightly, should be allowed in. To see them, there shouldn't be a barrier, you know, to getting into a gallery uh, or, a, or a museum.
3: Terrific stuff there from author and historian Donald Fallon from On the Record with Gavin Riley, and of course you can tune into Gavin every Sunday morning from eleven till one. Okay, I'm going to leave you with now some gorgeous music from the Tom Dunn Show. Here's Gemma Hayes. Have a great weekend.
17: Ride with me, boy, on my no racing through grey skies, looking for the yellow. Leave your father, mother, sister to the TV shows. They try to fix you, but sorrows in the marrow. Ride with me, boy, on my no Racing through grey skies, looking for the yellow. Leave your father, mother, sister to the TV shows. They try to fix you, but sorrow's in a marrow.